Turn, please, in the Word of God to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. It is always a precarious part of ministering in a foreign country. The colloquial phrases, things you can say that make perfect sense in your head, and they make absolutely no sense to those you're addressing. And sometimes it can be quite embarrassing. I was just told the other day of one occasion that took place here, I think, when one of the men from Ulster uh, was here preaching and encouraging the congregation to return to another meeting through the week where he would be preaching and happened to say, if you have nothing on, we'd love to see you. <laughs> now, to my ears, that sounds perfectly normal. In other words, if you have nothing on your schedule, if, you've do, if you're doing nothing else, then feel free, uh, please come along to the meeting. But uh, if you don't use that turn and you say, if you have nothing on, we would love to see you, that's a rather strange thing to hear from the pulpit. So, it is a very dangerous place to stand as a foreigner. You're never quite sure when you're going to say something which you ought not. So, uh, you can pray for your preacher for various reasons, including such reasons as just mentioned. I said this morning that I wanted to deal with uh, John Wycliffe, and it is my plan to next week uh, move in from Wycliffe, uh, sort of carry on from his life into those who were impacted by him and who really carried on much of his work in a fashion. The, tech, the reason why was, as I said this morning, verse 11 of Psalm 68, well, it came to me in prayer on Thursday, and I began to think about Reformation themes. It may have been that the seed was planted by the Reverend Elder, who said he was dealing with some matters concerning the Reformation this month, and with that seed planted. I did initially think about Wesley and those who went out from Wesley, but in our uh, Reformation weekend, there will be a measure of focus on the uh, early Calvinistic Methodists here in America, those who came here and preached the Word by Dr. McKnight and some other elements of Methodism will be, be dealt with and handled by the men who are speaking to us. And so, I didn't want to encroach into that. So, then I came in my mind to Wycliffe and those that followed. But uh, really, it's, it's just functioning as a, just a thought that helps us to give consideration to what happened historically. And we live in a time in which much of our Protestant heritage is being lost by ignorance, by a lack of reading, by the fact that most men, even in pulpits, either are embarrassed by it or ignorant of it, and so the people themselves don't become acquainted with the important events which occurred centuries ago, and the hand of God and providence upon His church. And as a result, we become uh, really vulnerable uh, to various errors and uh, to the loss of the truth, really, ultimately. So, let us read the text that is before us. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll read from verse 1 for our own edification and encouragement as David here 
offers a prayer. He's praising God for what He has shown in mercy, but there is a desire here that God would intervene. Psalm 68, verse 1, Let God arise, let His enemies be scattered, let them also that hate Him flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol Him that rideth upon the heavens by His name, Jah, and rejoice before Him. A father of the fatherless, and a judge of the widows, is God in His holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when Thou wentest forth before Thy people, when Thou didst marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, Whereby thou, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of, of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lying among the pots, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in, yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place." We'll end the reading there at verse 17, trusting the Lord will bless His Word. It goes on to give more details of God's deliverance and mercy upon His people and the sure judgment upon His enemies which are to come. Let us pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our Father, we come this night in the name of our Savior. We're thankful for the One who gives us confidence even in our life and in our death, that for those who are in Christ, they need not fear the last great enemy, for it is absent with the body, present, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We pray tonight, as we give consideration to what is on our hearts, that there would not merely be the passing on of details and information, but that Thou wilt use what Thou hast done in the past to stir up Thy church and give us an interest in what God has done, that it might even be and function in the way that the very history and record of God's Word does. It, it stills, instills in us hope and expectation and a way in which we can pray because God has done this in the past in similar circumstances, then we can call upon Him to do the same in our day. And whatever may be said of the darkness of our age, we're thankful that our God is able and up to the task, and we need not fear Yea, rather, we should pray and depend upon our God to give the help He has promised. So give it even now and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.
Forty years after the average person dies, there are few who really remember the person in any meaningful detail. Some, they will be mentioned, but again, seldom does it actually stir up any passion in our hearts. We just know who they were, maybe something with regard to their lives, but uh, we don't really feel like it's impacting us or challenging us or stirring us in passion. But for John Wycliffe, it's quite something else. Often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation, over 40 years after he died, officials of the church who were opposed to his doctrine and its spread across the land dug up his body, found his bones, burned the remains, and threw the ashes into a nearby river. That's how much they opposed John Wycliffe. So what was it that bothered them? Why did the church and all of its corruption seek to exercise such animosity to a man who'd been dead for basically a generation? Who was this man, predating Luther by 150 years? Who was this Roman Catholic priest whom Pope Gregory XI described as the master of errors? Well, it is him we want to consider tonight. He would die in 1384, and what we discover about his life is how God kept his hand upon him in ways that otherwise would have been impossible, and also caused him to be really fruitful in the remaining years of his life. That it was in the final years that he saw even more uh, influence as far as what he put his hand to. God was pleased to use a man later in life. And I think that's just encouragement for us all, because we need to remember that there isn't a point in our lives that we get to where we begin to say, well, I'm no longer relevant, or there's nothing that I can do. Or at certain seasons of our lives, we, we may get, say to ourselves, well, I can just be shelved. There's nothing more that I am to accomplish. This is far from the case. And as I say, this man did tremendous work, and really some of what we will look at We'll have to remain until next week, God willing, when we'll look at really his, his death and the legacy just before his death and the men that rose up in his stead. But I draw your attention to Psalm 68, verse 11. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Now, if you have a different translation that is not the authorized version, you may find that it has some kind of translation that refers to women, the women who announce the good news, the Lord gave the word, some way of translating the fact that women were announcing or giving forth this good news. And of course, if that is the case, then uh, it has a completely different meaning than how I understand the text. And, and I see, I'm not going to argue and fight for this, there is a place in which there historically is an understanding of, of women who who would be appointed or would take the role of giving celebration and praises after a great victory in battle. And that's how many understand this text. The reason why you find the, the woman used there is because the, the, the language is in the feminine and therefore is translated in that way. But it's not in the authorized version. And I think for good reason. In Isaiah 40 verse 9, a text that's well known to you, you find the same issue at hand where in the grammar, you have the feminine, but I don't think the context really is uh, driving at the fact of women specifically doing the work. Isaiah 40, verse 9, O Zion, 
that bringest good tidings, that's in the feminine, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. I think in that instance you can see that those that are being described really are the bride. They function as the bride, the church. Zion is the bride. And she is coming, declaring this message, giving this privilege of telling them, those within her and beyond, behold, your God. And I think something is of that is found here in a, a Psalm 68 verse 11 as well, that the bride is, is going forth, publishing this good news, this, this message of hope. And this is precisely what happened. When you look at the time of John Wycliffe, when you consider that age, there was so little preaching of the Word. It's hard for us to really envisage what that was like. There was religious worship. There were people who gathered for congregational uh, activity, let's say, some kind of Christian worship that was going on. But there was so little teaching, so little instruction. And when we come to our time and people are striving for Bible studies and they have all these books that they can read and they can uh, just order at the click of a button and a couple of days later it's at their doorstep, all of that is, you just had none of that. Anything spiritual that was written was written in Latin and the people could not read Latin. And you're living in a time where language itself isn't even standardized. You're living in a, in, a, in a day in which you don't have an English dictionary. That doesn't exist. And so even when you read things from that time, you find that the way words are spelt is different depending on who's doing the writing. They're doing their best to try and communicate things. And so you're, you're in a period in the middle of the 1300s actually where not only have you got the development of English trying to be established, pushing towards some kind of uh, significance in light of the fact that French has been the dominant language since the, the, the Norman invasion. You have all these things pulling together, and it is resulting in this dearth in the church. There's nothing for people to read. People can't read, and even if they could, as I say, they, there was nothing available to them, and the church opposed any kind of real exposition of the Word. It was for the intellectuals, it's for the clergy, it's for men to gather together in little rooms or classrooms and scholars to, to know these things, but, but the people can't understand these things that we understand. But when Wycliffe came along, he had a completely different perspective. The Lord gave the word. This has come from God, and it has to go out, it has to be disseminated. It ought to be that men understand what God has revealed. That was part of his drive and burden. So tonight, I have titled my message, A Light Before the Dawn, because there's no getting away from the fact that this is really before the dawn of the Reformation. This is 150 years, approximately, 150 years before Luther, before 1517, before all the events that unfolded with Calvin and others like Knox who stood at that time and transformed their nation. So let's first consider Wycliffe's context. We don't really know the world of the 1300s. 
it's not a period that really we, we study or are aware of. And, and actually, in reading about this, some remark on this, that because that century was so dark and depressing, that historians don't even really want to think upon it or develop it. Wycliffe was born in Yorkshire in northern England around 1330. There's some dispute about the precise date of his birth. Records aren't as clear uh, back in those days as they would be today. But around that time he was born. And by the time he was 30 years of age, when he's a young man, the most fatal pandemic ever recorded in human history was well underway. The bubonic plague, the Black Death. I don't know if you've ever read anything about the Black Death, but it resulted in the loss of anything from 75 to 200 million lives in the space of a few years. You try to conceive of that. 75 to 200 million in a day in which the world's population is nothing like what it is today. It devastated the population, not just of nations and towns, but of the world. Anything, we are told, from 30 to 60% of the entire population of Europe was gone in a few short years. No one existed who was not touched by this plague. No one, no one was in a place where they didn't feel the impact of it. Everyone lost someone they loved. Everyone lived in fear of whether they would be next. In many ways, really, the 1300s were a terrible time to be alive. Not only was there the Black Plague, but if you read the history of that period, there were numerous famines that greatly struck various nations, including England and other parts of Europe. According to official records of the English royal family, now keep this in mind, these are the people who have privilege. They have access to the best food, whatever's available. And according to official records regarding the royal family, the average life expectancy at birth in 1276 was 35 years. Between 1301 and 1325, during the Great Famine, it dropped to 30 years. Between 1348 and 1375, where initially that, that's where the plague really worked at that time, just those early, sort of late 40, early 50s, because of the plague, the average age dropped to only 17 years. The overall population drop during Wycliffe's life was around 40%. So he's living in a time where everyone is dying around him. At least that's how it feels. Everyone's dying. Even those who have wealth, have means. Even they can't expect to live beyond 30. Around the very time that the plague first broke out in 1346, Wycliffe attended Oxford University and immediately established himself as a man of ability. He achieved notoriety as a lecturer in theology and philosophy, and in the 1360s, he, he really was exercising his influence greatly in that context of academics where his students would gather around him and consider him the best teacher available to them. He kept himself largely out of any national movements. There was a lot of unrest. When you have this kind of thing going on, when people are dying all the time, when people are kept in poverty, there is a lot of unrest. People are unhappy. They try to blame anyone and anything in order that they might try to rectify the problem. 
But in 1374, he is appointed as a religious advisor to the court of King Edward III. One writer says, it is not till this appointment, or rather, it is not until his appointment as a member of Edward III's embassy to the, this congress at Bruges in, this, in July 1374, he notes that he steps into the political arena. From that time, he took a vigorous, often a decisive part in the conflict between the papacy and crown as partisan of the latter. He's fighting for the nation. He sees the problems, and he actually identifies the problems as, at least in part, rooted in the church. Now, when you try to ask the question, well, when was this man converted? It's not clear, at least in the reading, and I didn't have a lot of time, but I did flick through a number of books to try and identify when exactly was he converted. But as is the case with many of the reformers, it's not always easy to identify. Some put a change in him that occurs around 1378, where he begins to actually move at that time away from the patriotic influence to a more theological influence. He begins to let go of all of his fighting for the crown and the parliament against the church of Rome, and, and instead attacking the church of Rome in terms of her theological positions and the detriment that was having upon the people. And that may indeed be the case. It's clear that despite the fog which existed around the doctrine of justification at that time, that here was a man who understood what he was reading when he read the Bible. And Wycliffe read the Bible, he studied the Bible, he taught the Bible, and he wrote, quote, trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on His sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by His righteousness. Now, in this congregation, that's par for the course, so to speak. That's language that I hope you hear and you're familiar with. That's truth that you comprehend. But in that day, when you're being told, don't trust in anything but Christ, don't look to anyone but Christ, the righteousness you need before a holy God is found solely by resting and trusting in Christ. It's revolutionary. Not revolutionary in the sense that he's the first to declare it, but revolutionary in the sense that no one or very few are declaring it in his day. Now, when you read the life of someone like Wycliffe and you see this man rise up and we, we shine a light on him, <laughs> Sometimes you get the impression that here is a man without fault, with no sin. That's, that's not the case. As I was reading one of the historians, he, he points out the fact that Wycliffe had, had his faults, namely in the fact that he would have, at least at some points in his life or some juncture, he did what many others did in his position. He would apply for positions in churches, sometimes with no real intention to be there to do the instruction and the teaching. Sometimes men would, would, would apply for multiple churches in different areas. And when they got the position then, they would send the curates or the priest's assistants to go and fulfill the role, let them go and conduct the services while, while they had the return, whatever the stipend was for the priest in the area. And at least at some point in his life, he did the same. And you read that and you think, well, that seems like a very dishonest thing to do. I don't know what his motive was. It may be that he thought that by uh, more financially supporting what his, his primary endeavors, that it would allow him to, to, to do that more fully. I, I don't know. I don't know all that was going on there. 
But it did remind me, and I just bring this, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because every single, every single generation has its blind spots. There's going to be those, should the Lord tarry, who are going to rise up and they'll look at our generation and they will wonder, how on earth did they not see the problem in that? Now, you don't know what that might, may be because you're part of this context and you can't see it. But you look back at other times, you see other things, I could name them, I'm not going to go down that path, but you look back in history and you say, how is it that they didn't understand? But so it is, as I say, in every generation. And we're living in another generation in which young people will rise up, they're going to be critical of the preceding generations, maybe even the immediate generation ahead of them. And I, and I just bring this up, young person, because please, please, have more humility by the grace of God than what your heart inclines itself to. Pray for humility because the tendency to be critical of previous generations, imagining yourself to have it all figured out, is very real. And what you discover in the Christian life is when you're able to point out the faults in others and unable to see your own, the Lord will be sure to make you fall and fall hard so that you are able to see what was always there, but for some reason before that you could not see. So we are to live humbly and be careful. These men were not flawless, sinless at all. But that's the context. It's hard to just imagine living in a community where just funerals are constantly taking place, where people barely get to the age of 30. That's not the world in which we live today. And God has been very merciful to maintain that in our time. Secondly, his convictions, Wycliffe's convictions. It is said concerning the Messiah in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And is illustrative of, of Wycliffe's day because while we often think of Luther and after darkness, light, here you have a, a, a context in which a man is, is, is trying so hard to make light shine and the darkness is so thick it seems that it cannot be penetrated. But the work was being done. Wycliffe lived in a time where, as I've said already, the Bible is not available. The printing press is not going to be invented until 1440. So if you were to have a Bible, you have one option. It has to be written by hand. And so you think of that. You think of the labor involved in writing out the Bible. And in those days, it would have been in Latin, by hand. Now, people, they didn't have access to this. Here you are tonight, and I, I think this needs to be emphasized. It often is in meetings like this, and I'm going to emphasize it again. You have this in your hand. Better than that, most of you, by, by virtue of these devices, go nowhere without access to God's Word. Every moment of your life, it's stuck to you, some part of your body, in your pocket, or in your hand. And here's a time when there was, there was nothing 
They couldn't envisage that. The idea that you would have the Bible, everyone would have access to God's Word, couldn't be conceived. It makes you wonder why it is that we don't read it, why it is that we neglect it, why it is that we are so flippant towards it. I mean, even if you wanted a Bible, you had two things to consider. <laughs> Number one, it would probably cost you, in today's money, the value of a brand new car. Right? So, $30,000 or whatever. I mean, that, that's what you're dealing with for a Bible. $30,000 for a Bible. And then... The concern that if you're caught with it, in some places you could be in great trouble. But here was a man who believed that the Lord gave the word and it needed to go out. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Here is a gathering of people who are going to send it out. Here's a man who believes that's what must happen. The word has to go out. In the 1300s, the Roman Catholic Church had not only religious but political power over most of Europe. During Wycliffe's day, the papacy claimed to own England about, really, as far as lands are concerned, about 30% of the lands were in the hands of the church. And that's the day in which he, he lives. And part of this had come about because of King John about 150 years prior, who basically just gave everything over to the papacy. He was a man who would demand that constant financial aid for everything that, that was desired. The Pope got dependent upon everything that England could offer, taking the lands, demanding that there's no taxation on the dip, what was reaped from those lands, and then taxing the people further in order to fund their projects and so on. So, so this is the context Wycliffe is in. The land is being stripped by the church. I, I think that's a, a way to sum it up. He's just watching his country be stripped by the church, by the people who are meant to help others, bring light and life and hope and healing and encouragement. Instead, the people are left in poverty. They have nowhere to turn. As long as the money keeps going off to where the Pope is to fund all of his endeavors, everyone in authority was happy, but the people were far from it. So what did this man believe? First, we consider his doctrine on church and state. I noted already that Wycliffe got involved in politics. He was called to be in the court of Edward III. And again, we can't understand all the particulars of what was being faced at that time. So his first publication then becomes a political one of civil dominion. Historian Nick Needham notes, Quote, God had delegated a portion of his authority over secular things to the state, said Wycliffe, and over spiritual things to the church. However, human rulers could exercise this delegated authority only on condition that they served God faithfully. So what Wycliffe is saying is that the service to the church, how the state supports the church, is dependent upon the church's fidelity. 
If they did not, they lost their right to lordship. Therefore, Wycliffe taught, if bishops failed to live pure and blameless lives, the state, which had dominion over secular things, was entitled to strip them of their property and possessions. <laughs> so you, you can see what he's doing here. He's trying to remedy the problem in his nation. And by doing so then, he brings this revolutionary idea that he, he's telling the nobility, he's telling the king, regain authority over the land. Don't permit the church to strip her of all of her wealth. Now, the relationship between church and state then, of course, was very different than today. But you can see how his ideas would be perceived as dangerous. <laughs> if, you, if, you're, if you're the pope and you're hearing that one of your priests is trying to undermine your authority and to change the right you have to take money, I mean, you get upset. And that's exactly what happened. As a result of his views, the Bishop of London summoned Wycliffe to appear before his tribunal in February 1377. But Wycliffe had some friends. And he had a friend in one of King Edward's sons which helped protect him. But the problems wouldn't go away. And the problems wouldn't go away because Wycliffe wouldn't keep quiet. In May the same year, the Pope summoned him to appear in Rome. But Wycliffe refused to appear. At the beginning of the next year, this is 1378, the Archbishop of Canterbury attempted to put him on trial, although Wycliffe appeared and it gets underway, it was mercifully hindered. One writer says, the hearing had hardly gotten underway when recriminations on both sides filled the air. Soon they erupted into an open brawl, ending the meeting. And so you have these things going on, these providential dealings that occurred that intervened to preserve his life. At Lambeth Palace, when he's standing there to be uh, really condemned, ultimately that was the goal, and he declares at the outset of that meeting, I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. He goes on to say, I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. And as it's about to proceed, we read of Sir Lewis Clifford entering the chapel in the name of the Queen Mother, forbidding the bishops to proceed in a definite sentence concerning Wycliffe's conduct or opinions. So, so here's a man in the whole world, at least the church world, wants to stop him. And yet he has these few friends who keep intervening, preventing him from being destroyed. Not only did he establish then a doctrine regarding church and state, but his doctrine of Scripture also came to the fore. He published... Again, this time a treatise called On the Truth of Sacred Scripture. And in it he writes, again, it's kind of revolutionary language. Needham says, He argued that the Bible was the only source of Christian doctrine by which all believers must test all the teachings of the church, including the early church fathers, the papacy, and ecumenical councils. All Christians should read the Bible, so it must be translated from the Latin of the Vulgate into the natural languages of the various nations, end quote. Now, you read that and you go, so what? Well, he's, 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 he's part of a church system that says that their authority is not solely Scripture. It is tradition, capital T, and that the councils speak with authority, and the Pope utters infallibly this is, this is the, the air that everyone is breathing, and here's a man who comes and says, no, 
The Bible is the only source of Christian doctrine. And it's not to be reserved to all of you clergy in the church. It should be given to the people. And we aren't necessarily even to expect the people to read Latin. Let's give it to them in a language they understand, their own language. This is radical. You need to realize that. The privileges that you have today, the freedoms you enjoy today, only exist because a few men were able to speak what few others were willing to to say. When you say this, you stand before courts. You risk everything. And this is what he was willing to do. Even though many were illiterate, Wycliffe envisaged a day when at least one person could read the Scripture to an audience in their mother tongue. And we'll see how that developed next week, God willing. This is at a time when, I've, as I've already indicated, French is still dominant. There isn't standardized spelling. There's a lot of pieces that aren't quite all fitting together that are far more developed 150 years later when Luther and Calvin and Knox and so on are functioning. Thirdly, his doctrine of the church. Later in the same year of 1378, Wycliffe wrote another treatise, this time on the church. And in it, he opposed the idea that the church was exclusively an organization under the control of the papacy and priesthood, but was rightly understood to be a spiritual and invisible body. He also made it clear that the head of the church is Christ. You read that, and <laughs> it's... We, we can't imagine what it's like to, to write something down that if anyone reads, it could, end, it could end our existence. And then not just to write it, but to push it out to the world and, and have your name attached to it. What you find later in Wycliffe's life is that he is encouraging, he is calling people to debate him publicly. Let's discuss these things. Let's debate, but no one would stand up and engage in that task. In the next year, you see how this is all being crammed together. This is the late 70s, 78, 79. He's going to die in 84. He wrote, the power of the Pope, where he declared that the papacy was of human origin and had no authority over secular government. Now, we live in a time where you'd almost think that there's no distinction between Protestant and Roman Catholic churches except our history, that our origins are different. But really, we can now all come together, work together, stand together. And beloved, I say to you, we have to be so careful. I, I've said this on one or two occasions about just issuing concern, my issuing my concern regarding the willingness of professing Bible believers to join hands with those who utterly deny the gospel of Christ, but join hands in a way that makes you think as if we're all kind of the same. We are not. When you look at the political talking heads of our day, many of them are Roman Catholic, some of them are Jewish, 
very few of them Bible-believing people. But because we see some of the concerns that they identify, we not only give logical agreement to what they're saying, we don't only assent to the argument they present, we start to join hands with them as if we're the same and we're not. I liken it to joining hands for the sake of politics and social reform, joining hands with the Pharisees. Would you do it? Would you join hands with the Pharisees in the day in which our Lord Jesus lived? Would you? Would you say that the need of our nation is greater than being clear on the gospel? That's what people are doing. They are compromising the message by which men are saved, brought into a saving knowledge of Christ with their sins forgiven. That message is being compromised for political ends, material aspects of civil government and so on, and so, social political matters. We have to be so careful. His doctrine of the Lord's Supper was something else that he addressed. Now, he had, mentioned, he had dealt with this before, but in 1380-81, he publishes again, this time attacking the Roman Catholic Church's view of communion in his treatise on the Eucharist. Now, if you think everything that he has done before was bad, <laughs> I think people would have grown to just accept to some degree, as long as they could silence him, they would have been happy. But as soon as he started to attack the mass, Wycliffe ventured into an area that immediately brought such anger and such animosity that even those who had previously supported him, who had stood with him, who had defended him, who had tried to protect him by whatever means they could, even they vacated their place and left him largely on his own. The Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Mass, their view of what happens there is known as transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation had existed for a few centuries or so in that it was spreading around the church this view of, well, I'll explain what it means in just a minute. But really, Wycliffe is living in a time where it only became like church, like solidified by a council of the church in 1215. So he's looking back, again, about 150 years or so to you think, you think back 150 years. Where are you going back to? Where does your mind go back to? It doesn't feel that far away. That's how 1215 felt to him. And how the church then says, this is what happens in the Mass. And he begins to oppose it. Before we progress again, a quote here from Dr. Cairns' Theological Dictionary of Theological Terms 
where he explains what transubstantiation is. He says, The center of the entire Roman Catholic system of worship, the Mass, purports to be a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. In Roman Catholic worship, it is distinct from the laity's participation in Holy Communion. So there's something the priest is doing before the people participate in communion. Before the worshipers can participate by receiving a consecrated wafer, known as the host, the officiating priest performs the Mass, professedly changing the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and offering up a true, proper, propitiatory sacrifice to God. And that's in quotes. That's what they think they're doing. They're turning the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ and offering up a true, proper, propitiatory sacrifice to God. That's what they believe they do. The sacrifice, of course, is for the living and the dead. And you're not just going back to Middle Ages and observing some obscure uh, superstition of the church where you look back and you see this falsehood and you think, well, well surely no one believes that today. But beloved, in every single Roman Catholic church, every single Roman Catholic church in the world, this is what goes on. Now, you live in Greenville, South Carolina, so by personal experience, I can tell you right now that the language of Roman Catholics in this area tends to be quite distinct. Rome has a way of assimilating into its context. For example, you go to Mexico, you go to different parts of the world, all of a sudden, the, the crucifixion in the cathedrals will be, the, the figure will be black, whereas in, in Northern Europe, that figure will be white. They assimilate into the area, they depict things differently, and how they speak and convey things changes. But the baseline theology, what's actually going on, remains the same. Now, if you are a Protestant, then you affirm that this is utterly heretical. The articles of the Church of England refer to the Roman Catholic Mass as, quote, blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Our own confession of faith says the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's once-only sacrifice the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Wycliffe, in turning his assault upon the Mass and declaring that what was going on is not biblical, this is not according to Scripture, this is superstition that has arisen in the church, and even though it may have the affirmation of the council and the support of the popes, he declared plainly that Scripture was opposed to this understanding. Again, seeing in the Bible for himself, understanding that what our Lord Jesus did and what the Son of God accomplished was a once-for-all sacrifice. What he did in laying down his life, the just for the unjust, to bring sinners to God was sufficient. And it is by faith we appropriate all the benefits of that work. And we need not a man to go through some ritual after which he tells you that this bread is the literal body of the Son of God incarnate. 
and this blood is his literal blood. This is not biblical. Wycliffe was paving a way for coming Protestants in his assault against this central act of Roman Catholic worship. He denied that the bread and wine changed while affirming that Christ was present in a spiritual manner and that Christ is received by faith in the Lord's Supper. When we conduct the Lord's Supper, we believe that by faith we see what it signifies and we see the finished work of Christ and our hearts are drawn out in evangelical faith in spirit birth faith to rest in what it points us to. Wiley in his history of Protestantism writes, in making his blow to fall here, that is on attack on the mass, Wycliffe knew that the stroke would have tenfold more effect than if directed against a less vital part of the system. If he could abolish the sacrifice of the priest, he would bring back the sacrifice of Christ, which alone is the gospel, because through it is the remission of sins and the life everlasting. And so Wycliffe engaged in an effort to try and draw even the intellects, the intellectuals, the academics into a debate. He posts in Oxford, 12 propositions, and he invites people to debate, and they would not. Instead, around the circumference, scurrying in the shadows, were arrangements being made. How do we deal with this man? He paid a heavy price. Nobles dropped their support. The university turned against their leading teacher for the last years. Wiley again records, great was the commotion at Oxford. All shouted heresy. On that point, there was clear unanimity of opinion, but no one ventured to prove it to the only man in Oxford who needed to have it proved to him. So they come seeking for him. They walk one day into his class while he is teaching and they present before him a sentence. And Wycliffe's response was to say, you ought to have shown me that I am in error. Because of what was going on in that time, and maybe I'll come back, backtrack a little bit next week, there was never to be a trial and he was never to be put to death. There was a lot of unrest, great schism in the church and other things going on that prevented them executing on their desire. But he went into the countryside again. And there in the countryside, God was pleased to use him. It was there where his vision of giving to the people a Bible began to take real, some form of realization. With the help of his friend, John Purvey, he began to translate the Bible into English. Now, it's not a perfect translation. What they did, they did not go back to the Hebrew and the Greek. They just took Jerome's Latin Vulgate and they began to translate it as best they could from the Latin. But there was enough, there was enough truth in that translation that it began to liberate hundreds and thousands of souls. 
It's a reminder to us. Those of us who love the purity of God's word, want to fight for the purity of God's word, to realize that even with translations that are imperfect, and we don't want to give to people imperfect and poor translations, but even in the imperfect translations, God will show himself. He will appear. You don't have to go on an all-out assault against every single translation but one. Hold to it. Understand the reasons why you hold to it. But aren't we glad that God still uses by His Spirit even imperfect translations of His Word that have sufficient truth that direct them to the real object of salvation, which is Christ Himself? I just say that because, beloved, at times you hear people militating in a way and you think, I'm glad for your zeal. I maybe agree with all of your opinions. But let's not lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign in salvation. And we can present our case. But we don't have to get so bitter about it or so angry about it. There are many people, and I think I heard it stated from this pulpit years ago, Dr. Cairns condemned those who would argue and fight for a particular Bible translation while that same translation sat on their shelf gathering dust from one Lord's Day to the next, never read. I'm going to come back to some of the things I've put here next week. Let, let me just tie this up some lessons. As I reviewed, and it's been a very crammed <laughs> couple of days, as I reviewed the life of Wycliffe, there are a few things that stand out in my mind. First of all, the difference it makes in a life when that life understands the gospel. There were priests all over the country who had access to the same Latin scriptures, and had been instructed in similar ways, but they did not understand the gospel. It was Wycliffe's personal experience with the Word, his personal experience of God's salvation, his personal understanding of what God revealed in his Word. The Lord gave the Word. That came to him, that sense of divine blessing, inspiration, God has given His Word, here is what it reveals, and directing Him to Christ for full confidence in what is provided. That, that soul burned, I, I liken it to Jeremiah, when he's been encouraged to be quiet, and he's even trying to tell himself, don't say anything, Jeremiah, you're in enough trouble. But His Word was in my heart like a fire. When a man has the gospel burning, burning in his soul, he begins to speak and act in ways no one else understands. Keep quiet, Wycliffe. Keep quiet. Your work will be better accomplished in the shadows with, with your students, with your pupils. Don't get public. But the word burned within his soul with such passion, he had to declare it. And it all comes back, he understood 
the gospel. Beloved, we can, we can assess whether we really understand the gospel by our interest, our zeal, our support of the gospel. Who's the man who dips into his pocketbook, who, who writes the large check when the missionary comes along? It's a man who understands the importance, the significance of the gospel. It's not just someone being nice. He sees this is what the world needs. Great was the company of those that published it. Get the word out. So we understood the gospel, and you must too. Make it your life's ongoing work to understand the gospel. Don't just say, well, I get that Jesus died on the cross. Make it a life's desire and burden to understand the gospel. Because your heart doesn't stay aflame with zeal by simply having an experience in the past. It must be daily. It must be daily seeing. The Son of God came. He took on flesh. He had my sins imputed to him. He went to Calvary to pay for them. He rose again from the dead. This is that daily realization that this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the word that God has sent that sends you forth into your various places of employment and stations in life with a passion that many others will not understand, but they will be affected by it. Secondly, he attacked the enemy. Because he understood the gospel, well, he, did, he also understood the danger of those who undermined it. There was no desire to, to formulate some kind of ecumenical spirit in John Wycliffe. Now, this, this, this is in a day where if I say something against the Roman Catholic Church, you might be offended, all right? Or someone watching on, they might see it, oh, he doesn't like the Roman Catholic Church, they, and they, they get offended. And I'm never listening to that preacher again. That's about the height of it. That's about the height of the cross I bear with regard to that. Wycliffe... Wycliffe is staring at the very real probability that they are going to end me if I go after them. And yet, because of the honor of Christ, because of the need for the clarity of the gospel to be sent forth, he is willing to put his life on the line, attacking the enemies and those who opposed the gospel of Christ. And thirdly and finally, he unleashed the answer. He unleashed the answer. He didn't just understand the gospel. He didn't just attack those who tried to misrepresent it. He then unleashed it. He, he realized the power of changing England lies not in the king, nor does it lie in John Wycliffe, but it lies in the word of God. Wycliffe understood that it was the Bible. The people just needed the Bible. Give them the Bible. So he would sit down and begin that translation work, crude as it may have been, but it unleashed, as I say, the answer to England 
and began to sow seeds that would be reaped in later years. You know, there's a wonderful little artistic depiction that shows you the significance of this man. Four individuals, four men are depicted. From right to left, their names are Philip Melanchthon, the right-hand man of Martin Luther. To the left of him is Martin Luther himself. To the left of him is John Huss of Bohemia. And kneeling down beside, to the left of John Huss, is John Wycliffe. And if you look at it, you will see that there's, they have in their hand this light that they're passing from one man's torch to the other. And it all goes back to Wycliffe. The torch of the Reformation. What happened in the 16th century. The changes which occurred that transformed the very world in which we live. The benefits of which we reap to this very second in which we're breeding in this land. In many ways go back to Wycliffe and his courageous, fearless, resolved stand. The enemies hated him so much so that over 40 years after he's gone, they dig up his bones, they burn them to dust, and they throw them in the river. I mean, that's hatred, isn't it? But to Christ, what a life of sacrifice, owned of God, blessed to the salvation of souls that only eternity itself will reveal. May the Lord give us the same passion. Let's bow together in prayer. You know, as we give insight into some of these things in the past on occasion, especially in October, it's really just an overview. And I trust it functions as an encouragement to you, and especially to you younger people, you children, you young adults. Make time to familiarize yourself with history. Endeavor to read a few pages, even if you don't have much time, read a few pages of good biographies, good books of history that detail to you the heroes of the church as you live in the benefits of their sacrifice. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't understand why anyone would be so concerned about these things. Every day you breathe the air of freedom and that air came at the cost of the blood of many martyrs and yet you have no sense of gratitude. Worst, worst of all, you cannot see that the Son of God gave up his life and died upon a cross that your sins might be forgiven. That's the ingratitude that will plunge you into God's hell 
And in Christ's name, I urge you, seek the Lord and call upon him. Lord, bless these thoughts tonight. Help us to value our heritage, those who stood for truth, those who preached the word, and grant us grace to follow where they were faithful and to have the same sense of passion for the cross of Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be a fresh, a clarion call and declaration and statement made from every heart. Hear and answer prayer. Be with us in our fellowship. Help us to live zealously for the honor of our God this week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.